You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. All right. I think this podcast is the most nerdy and nervous I've ever been because uh, I talked to Joe Madden, uh, three-time manager of the year award winner. Um, uh, he recently uh, coached the Los Angeles Angels and led the Tampa Bay Rays to their first World Series. And of course, he led the Chicago Cubs to their first World, World Series title in 108 years, which was really important to me, especially growing up as a kid. Uh, whose dad worked at WGN. And I talk about my brother living across the street on Sheffield and watching games. And Joe Man's the coolest. So uh, I know you're going to love this pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater. And it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance. And the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Joe Madden, welcome to the show. Thank you uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. So I had. I always, my first question is usually I go through a book that the author is, has written and you've written this great book. Um, and I sort of, and I have this, I have this sort of main theory that I see inside the book. Um, but I'm also, and I don't know, I got, I got hired in Second City in 1988 and Chris Farley was just hired into the company. We became friends. And I don't know if you remember him on Saturday Night Live, the Chris Farley show. Yeah. He introduced Paul McCartney because you had fun. Be- hey, you're in the Beatles. That was cool. So there's... <laughs> I imagine you got that a lot with people. It's like, hey, you coach the Coastal World Series. That's cool. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And, you know, I, like I'm a lifelong Cubs fan. My dad worked for WGN for 33 years. My brother lived on Sheffield in the 80s when you could take folding chairs and beers to the roof just to watch the game. It's like the this it's such a romantic game and it's multi-generational and that's got, I can't imagine that you don't, a day doesn't go by, especially when you're in Chicago where people aren't coming up to you and sharing these like rather deep stuff about their, about what you and that team meant to them. 
hundred percent. I mean, a lot of times it really gets to the point where they will talk about deceased relatives and right. going to the, to the uh, funeral, uh, to the cemetery and sitting next to their stones, their tombstones and having a drink with them. And when you yeah. hear stuff like that, I mean, it doesn't get more deep. I don't think than that gets deep. Um, so I, I listen I, and because I know how sincere everybody is. I know how much they mean this, uh, how much it means to them and, and to the previous generations. Um, it's just different. You don't get this everywhere. I don't even know which other sports franchises. I guess maybe the Red Sox have done a little bit of that when they went a couple yeah. of years ago. But, but I mean, the thing about Chicago the, and where that ballpark is situated, uh, and 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 there's in the history there to me it was not lost on me. I walked in that ballpark every day. I would look up and say thank you because I really felt that sincerely. So when the fans mm-hmm. come up to you um, and they're really uniquely great um, and 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 are, are grateful for what had happened, man, it really humbles you. Yeah, that's great. All right, so I have many takeaways from reading your new book, book but the biggest yes. one is actually confusion. Confusion in the sense that you were so early to the idea that accumulating information and data was a highly valuable commodity in Major League Baseball to the point that like you gave people data and they weren't interested in it, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And when matched with experience and a high baseball IQ, that was totally the sweet spot. But now it seems in a very real sense that it's become data only data all the time. And that's both confusing and really frustrating. Totally frustrating because at, at one point it was all baseball people, for lack of a better term, with uh, the mathematicians trying to get their foot in the door. And quite frankly, the baseball folks wanted to listen to what they had to say because we were always open to grabbing new information. Just give us a, a new vein of info. Let us let us in and we're, we're all about it. But now it's swung so far to the other side where mathematicians are running the game and real baseball folks can't get in the door. It's really mm. been slammed on them. Um, experience is really almost a dirty word and, and nobody really is looking for it anymore or wisdom. And even to the point I, I, I mentioned this, I'm concerned with the minor leagues. I'm concerned right. with minor league coaches because there's nobody there to pass it along. And, and nobody's even talking about that. So yes, it has swung so far to the other side where people believe dissertations are what players need when the, all they need is a nugget. They can't handle, they can't carry all this with them in a hot moment. Nobody can but that's where it's gotten to, and, and they keep building baseball ops departments to all these grandiose sizes. And it's just a self-perpetuating uh, line of employment because the more people and the more they sell that this stuff is important, the more that ownership wants them and the more uh, greater uh, baseball ops departments, more people involved in it. And it's not what you need. You need more real baseball being taught, not more math. I thought it was interesting, too, talking about – because, I mean, you – you you wouldn't have done the shift, which was your your move, if you yeah. didn't have data, right? So so sure, and and that, and now they're eliminating it. Yeah, but they, what happened back then? We would we would do our own uh, spray charts. We would we would spray chart the team. In other words, draw lines where the ball was being hit, and primarily your data was uh, contrived of the team that that you played the Mariners was just you versus the Mariners. That's where the information came from. Then it became every team every day was scouted. So it became, it became greater than that. Yeah. So at that particular juncture, we were working off of our own sheet of music and then it's gotten to the point where it's gotten so involved, so complicated and so in depth, which again, it's, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and the shift, I did that because I saw Ken Griffey's sheet that I had done and there was Mm -hmm. nothing on the shortstop side on the ground game before the game, I go in and I talk to uh, 
Terry Collins was sitting there with Sparky Anderson. And I asked TC, would you mind if we do this? And he said, of course, go ahead. So we did it. And then it eventually built into other items. And when it got to the race, we, we took it to another level. So now they don't want it because it's, it's restricting offense. Of course it is. That's what it was designed for. Yes. But, now, but now they're talking about, which I don't understand, uh, it's going to benefit the contact hitter, which I don't get. I think it's going to benefit the left-handed pull hitter with power because now mm. when his mistakes are going to get through, when his mistakes get through, his average is going to go up. His on base is going to go up. He's going to be more confident, and I think he's going to hit more home runs because of that. Hmm. Um, one of the I kept seeing all these parallels in terms of my world at, at Second City. Uh, you know, again, a storied institution, and 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 certainly a place where we recognized when we had to shut down during COVID how much we almost completely lost in terms yeah. of expertise and, you know, uh, and just the, the sort of daily practices that are ingrained, the sort of rituals that that maybe we took for granted, but were actually these huge sort of belonging cues. And one of the things that's interesting is we know in our work, it's all about relationships. It is 100% about the relationship between that ensemble of performers and their relationship with the audience. And it was interesting to see in your writing that you, that's kind of the same in, in your field as well. Yeah, I'm all about it. I mean, I, I, they talk, I've been asked, like, when you go somewhere new, what do you do to build that culture? And this goes back to a conversation I had with Gene Mock in the 1980s when he told me um, by the batting tunnels at Gene Autry Park that I built a great atmosphere around here. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I tried to dissemble and find out what, what is he talking here? And what I figured out was, yes, we did build relationships. We communicated extremely well. And with that, the players trusted us and we trusted the players. And then after that, you exchange ideas and you have to get to these first two points before anybody's going to listen to each other. And then really the the most um, important part is that you can be constructively critical of one another and you can't get there unless you have a relationship, unless you trust one another, unless you've exchanged ideas, you can't get to that most important part where we could be constructively critical of one another. And that's it. So when I go to a new situation, that is at the forefront of my mind is how to build a culture by using these steps to build a culture. And I really believe it's tried and true. And I know that it works. That's also not the way you were coached, nor I. So no, I, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of six boys and mm-hmm. um, I quit soccer because the coach just yelled at me too much. And I was sort of like, <laughs> I can't do it. But that's, that's how, uh, you know, basically, but uh, the, until you had some mentors, you know, and Bob right. Clear being one, right. And some others who showed you there was a different way. Yeah. Communication as opposed to intimidation. I think back when we were growing up, intimidation was the main <laughs> communicative factor. Um, I played a lot of football. I had some really tough guys with football. I had some really tough guys with baseball too, but uh, when I got to college at Lafayette, Coach Bob Root was my backfield coach. And this guy communicated so well. I just wanted to coach or be like Coach Bob Root. So I, that's, that was the thought that I had. He is communicating with me through uh, a conversation as opposed to attempting to intimidate me, which I think has been a lot of what how it's been done in the past. So uh, I want to treat others the way I'd like to be treated when really when it comes down to. So when I got to getting my own group up, you know, when you get to rock your own babies, your players, your team, I, I, I wanted to treat them as, as though or how I would like to be treated, how I was coached in a way that really resonated. And when I thought that made me better, not afraid to make mistakes, uh, permitted me to be, be accountable because I knew this guy would listen to me and not blow up at me. There's a lot of stuff going on in that dynamic where, 
If you're working with a, a fellow coach that's a great listener, uh, and again, he, you're going to answer a lot of your own questions or problems just by him listening well to you. So Coach Root, Bob Clear, all these dudes, man, they they taught me, they brought me to another level by communicating with me and not trying to intimidate me. Yeah, well, that's that mentorship thing. And I yeah. talk about mm-hmm. this a lot here. Even though I started here as a dishwasher, when Harold Ramis would come to the shows, Beautiful. he would sit and talk and tell stories and ask you your opinion. And it's like, you you just enter a whole other space when you feel you've got that level of mentorship. And it's not, I mean, you talk in the book about just because you have great stats in the back of the card doesn't mean you're going to be a leader. That's right. That does not make you a Hall of Fame coach or manager. Um, yeah. There's certain people that you're drawn to and there's certain people that when you're in a conversation with them, you just feel strongly that they're giving me good information. They're giving me good intel. I really need more of this kind of stuff. And again, you're talking about uh, Harold and I, I could talk to you about Coach Rudin and, and Bob Clear, et cetera. Uh, there's certain guys, Don Zimmer, as an example, my, yeah. my, what a great friend, friend that just passed away, Ken Revisa was a sports psychologist and Kenny and I worked together a lot since 1985. I miss his ear right now. I like, right. With everything that happened at the end of this year, I would have definitely called him and Kenny would have put things in perspective for me regarding being let go by the angels, et cetera. He would have reinforced some of my thoughts or he would have, he would have just uh, given me, he wouldn't give me a warm fuzzy. If he didn't agree, he would have told me he doesn't agree yeah. also, which I really appreciate. So you need those people in your life. You need that sounding board. You need somebody that if you don't want to hear the answer, don't ask the question because they're going to give it to you back straight. And I love that about all these mentors that I've had. Yeah. My friend, Kim Scott wrote the book, Radical Candor, which is just about that, which is you, you really can't, someone's not going to accept your, your candor unless you know that they love you and care for you. And Absolutely. it's really vital to cultivate that. All right. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about November 3rd, 2016. And can I quickly tell you my my story? And sure, absolutely. Your story is is going to be much better. But um, so my wife <laughs> and daughter necessary. and I, my wife and daughter and I are literally standing in front of the TV um, when we get a panic call from our son, who was a freshman at Skidmore College in upstate New York. Sure, he had been he didn't have a TV, so he was watching in the cafeteria. And of course, there, we're hitting this rain delay, and the guys in the cafeteria are like, "You got, we're all cleaned up. You got to go." And there was no TV to be found. So I'm like, just stay on the phone and I'm going to give this to you play by play. And so I'm just doing it on the phone. And then KB tosses the final out to Rizzo. And I'm like, Nick, we won the world series. And he, he is crying and I'm crying. And my daughter gets the W flag and runs outside. People are all out, you know, Chicago, the, Mm -hmm. the neighborhoods are exploding. And, and it's, I will never forget this moment in my life, especially because we had this weird thing of me having to do play by play because he couldn't see it live. And so you're, si- you're sitting in your usual spot at the top of the dugout, yes. right? At the, yep. Okay. What, <laughs> I'm sure you've explained this a million times, but for our listeners, what did that feel like? Well, first of all, I love your story. I mean, the fact that you're able to do the play-by-play for your son, I mean, that's, that's pretty solid. I think that's outstanding. What it was like, um, you know, you're, you're sitting there, pins and needles. Um, here, the thing that I did know, because my, Mike Brazello sitting next to me, the, our game planner, uh, Martinez, the hitter, as a right-handed hitter, had like a minuscule, almost a zero batting average against left-handed curveballs. Oh. And Mike Montgomery is a left-handed curveball specialist. specialist. So uh, Borzi is communicating with Miggy Montero behind the plate, and all this guy's going to see is curveballs. So you're watching it from the side. Come, you, you watch the ball come out of the hand, and you're coming out real nice. You see this weak swing, and then all of a sudden, here goes that dribbler. Now, it's a dribbler, and the guy can run a little bit, so you don't, you're not sure. You're yeah. just not sure. But KB gets to it well. 
And KB, KB is not intimidated by big moments. So he was, he was solid right there. The thing was, I saw his back foot slip. We all saw his back foot slip. And when that happened, I, oh, no. I thought the ball for sure, once he left his hand, was going over Rizzo's head. I did. And then you just go like this. You shift almost like a tennis match. You look to your right, and the ball's hitting Rizzo right in the face in his glove. And that's that. That's it. My first thought, uh, 108 years. That was my first thought. I normally go to my family. I normally go to a lot of different. I go to coaches. But in that moment, I thought 108. Think about it. I mean, we went there. We, me, my, my, as a manager, coaching staff, players, we wanted to be part of that first group. And then, of course, with Theo there and Jed there and the resources of the Cubs and Ricketts family, it, it definitely, we all believed that it could happen. We did. So then it did. So it happens. And it may all your surrealisms come true. I got a T-shirt about that because that's that kind of moment. It's just like. It is it's a dream. Uh, pinch me, wake me up. Did this really, really just happen? You go through all these thoughts. I swear to God, you go through all these thoughts. And uh, that was it. So Rizzo running in, then Davey grabbing me, and then you run out to the middle of the field, and it's just pure chaos. And you're yeah. just trying to congratulate everybody, but you know you've done it. And it's really quite, uh, quite an uh, accomplished feeling from within. And I'll take you um, uh, a few moments earlier, you mm-hmm. know, uh, which was, when the rain delay happened, mm-hmm. you had no idea that Hayward was going to call this players only meeting, right? Correct. I had no idea because I'm walking in and in, in, uh, Cleveland dugout goes here, then it goes down steps yeah. and then back up steps and off to the right is a weight room. And I'm walking down to go up to look at the weather report on my iPad and all the players are peeling off into the right into the weight room. And I go upstairs. I'm with Jed Hoyer looking at the weather map. And somebody said, Jason Hayward called the meeting among all the players. And I thought to myself, that's great. That's all that that's mm-hmm. probably as much as I said, that's great. That's that's perfect, actually. So we go through this process, we get done, all of a sudden we're gonna gotta go back on the field. So I go back down the steps, I walk outside, and they're all like standing in front of the dugout or getting loose. And I could not believe how fresh everybody looked. Mm-hmm. For lack of a better, they were just ready to go. And they were confident, wide-eyed, eager, all the above. So this is pretty. This is pretty solid. And Schwarbs just goes ahead and gets that first hit, and then the pinch run by Albert and everything else started to ensue. Um, Zoe's knocked down the left field line. Everything, and don't forget Mickey's base hit. People don't right. talk about that one enough. But anyway, came back refreshed. So whatever they said in there, whatever Jay would, I've never asked him what he had said there. Hmm. But whatever he did, they responded, and that's the perfect example of how this whole thing should work. Where a peer, a member of the group itself is the guy that says something inspiring to the entire group because they didn't need to hear me at that point. They needed to hear from Jason Hayward, and he was the right man for that time. And when did you learn what was going on in the Cleveland locker room? Like, did that, did that come with the writing of the book, or did you know before that they were, like, taking naps? I had no idea. I, I, no, I had no idea. That just came when when uh, Tommy Verducci yeah. did all that research. I didn't know any of that. I you're so locked into what you got to do next. Uh, what's going to happen next? Who's going to pitch next? Who's going to hit next? What if this doesn't sure. work out? You're constantly going through this litany of uh, potentialities, and that's where your brain's lock, locked in. What a yin yang, though. I mean, that's right. Just, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, uh, you talk about motions. My God. Right. 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 Um, it's funny. One of there's all these great famous improv adages that you you learn when you hear, and one is um, you need to be fiercely present in the moment. Because how are you going to improvise with someone if you are not hanging on every single word and the intention behind the word and all of that? That shows up in, in some of your philosophy for, for this great game. 
be present, not perfect. Um, yeah. Perfection is a boring concept. I, I'm not into perfection. I think we all attempt to achieve that knowing we're, we're never, at least you should know you're never going to get there. But at least the seeking that is going to lead you to greatness, I believe. So you need to be in the present tense. You, you got to stay there. Not easy. Like when the, when the dude hits the home run on the left field line, the first thing I, I, I knew how to get back there, I said, I asked Davey Martinez, who leads off for us next inning? That was my first question to him. So I had to get back here to the right now. It's so easy to get caught in the trap of always looking forward and, uh, and anticipating. And a lot of times anticipating a negative result. A great line that I read in the, in the past is that anxiety lives in the future. So the moment you want to let your mind always drift, normally there's time, but normally it's, it's, it's with a negative outcome in mind. It's not always about a positive outcome in mind. So the more you stay right here, right now, this is what you can't control. And that's really what it comes down. So be present, not perfect. And for me, perfection is a boring concept. Yeah, we know in our work too that you can't be creative mm-hmm. if you're in judgment of self or judgment of others, which is uh-huh. a, another sort of element of that. Um, sure. And also, we have we have a, a phrase in our work, which is see all obstacles as gifts, which is uh, a- acknowledging that there is going to be mm-hmm. failure after failure. And in fact, what, when I, I do a lot of keynote speaking and I use a, a baseball analogy where I'm like, you know, if you're going in for a job review and you failed 70% of the time, you know, you think you're going to get fired, but a major league baseball hitter goes into that conversation and they're a 300 hitter. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the position I'm in because of all my failures. I mean, I came up as a scout and a minor league manager. A lot of my failures were when nobody ever saw them. And that's really the, that's the training ground. That, that's what I'd, I'd like to see more people go through. I think we've gotten away from that uh, with the generation that's coming up right now, like the managerial, et cetera. They don't go through the this due paying, dues paying that needs to be done, and everything needs to be microwaved or expedited. My whole thing, where I'm at right now, I had I was horrible when I managed in Midland, Texas. Terrible. I was horrible when I got passed over to be a big league coach in the early 1990s. It was horrible. Reacted terribly to it. And as I moved forward through that, when I first got to the big leagues, I had a real problem trying to understand that I really belong here. Can I do this kind of stuff? I didn't know that. So you got you got to fight through all these weird negative moments or these moments of uh, concern that you just don't know if you have the metal to handle all this stuff. But you fight, fight, fight through it. Eventually, hmm, I belong here. I can do this. That's part of the five levels of being a professional. So you got for me. You have to go through all those different stages. You have to fail badly, miserably on your own. But then you got to be able. You have to put it back together too. I'm not saying you can't have uh, great advice or mentors. Absolutely, you need them, but. At the end of the day, you got to confront these demons yourself and, and you got to put it back together yourself in order to get to the level that uh, I think I've been able to achieve. I was talking about this with Stephen Colbert recently because he's uh, head of our art- artistic advisory board. And mm-hmm. we were talking about when you get hired in a second city, you know, after you take classes and do other stuff, you get hired into the touring company, which is essentially our AAA. So you're traveling <laughs> all over the country in a van playing little colleges and sometimes, you know, big theaters and that, but it's that idea of being on the road across America with this like group of your brothers and sisters that really sort of prepare you for then hopefully getting one of these stages in places like Chicago or Toronto. And I think for you, it felt like scouting and that sort of roving thing that you did was, was your version of that, which is almost Kerouacian, right? Right. And right. And I actually, I used this, I used his, uh, one of his uh, quotes today, uh, one day I will find the right words and they will be simple. I got, I love that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did. I, um, 
I, I did do everything. I did do everything and it's not happening anymore. And I needed to fail on all these different levels, right? Not necessarily fail, but I had to be confronted with different obstacles like you're talking about. I really believe in order to be in the big leagues, you have to have had been on at least, I don't know, 20 to 25, 12-hour bus rides from one minor league city to another, something like that. There's got to be some kind of mathematical. If you want to go math, figure that one out. I, I, I worked in the uh, Pioneer League, which from Idaho Falls to uh, Calgary was like a 12-hour bus ride. I was from Midland, Texas to Jackson, Mississippi, which was about the same. Did all those things. And it, it's important that I did all those things. I sat on the front. I was pondering what's going on. I see the lines going by. I'm thinking about my, my, my craft all the time. How do I get better? How do I eventually get to the big leagues? What do I have to do uh, you know, for myself? to prove to other people that I belong in their venue in, in, in the major league ballpark. That was daily. That was like, that was all consuming for so many years. And then even when you get there, then you got to fight to stay there too. Mm. But I, I'm a big believer in pounding the bushes. I'm a big believer in off Broadway, man. That's yeah. how you get there. That's how you get there to really, what does it take 50 years to be an overnight success? Something like that for me. Yeah. And That's I, right. and I really, I really am an advocate of all of that. I, w- I was visiting one of the touring companies in Little Rock back when I was producing the the stages and uh, had had a um, air air flight out of there very early and I got into the cab and the cab's like I got to stop and pick up someone else and I'm like all right it's like five in the morning right. I don't care. <laughs> and the guy who gets in I'm like I recognize that guy and the cab driver goes does anyone ever tell you you look like Bill Self he goes I get that all the time and it's Bill Self the coach mm-hmm. yeah and and we had this really interesting conversation because he's like yeah out meeting a recruit and I'm like wow, like you pull down a major salary and you like, but this is, you have to go to a kitchen table and sit and talk to a parent uh, to do this. And I'm like, that's actually probably a gift in terms of not, not having that separation between you get to really see, see all of it, you know, in terms of the. Yeah. I think that really helps you in a hot moment. I mean, those are the kind of things that you do that build up that, that, that cachet of experience, whatever you want to call it, wisdom, feel, whatever you want to call it. It's derived at a kitchen table. And there's uh, the, Timmy Samuel. When I, I signed Tim Samuel, Tim Samuel was a pretty good player. That happened at a kitchen table, his kitchen table in Phoenix, after going back and forth with Bobby Fontaine on the phone, negotiating the, the signing bonus with Timothy, who I consider a really good friend to this day. But I had that experience, too. I was there. I had the experience of, of uh, in, in, <laughs> in A-ball, and it's in the book also, where my trainer punched one of my pitchers in the face and broke his jaw. And I had to talk to the Angels GM. That's that that very night. These are these are my charges, and and this is what's happening under my watch. I mean, these are the things that nobody experiences anymore. And and I'm here to tell you, I'm so grateful. Not that Butch Dowie's got his his, his face broken, but that whole moment right there, it, it 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 makes you stronger at what you do. It makes you more accountable at what you do. It gives you insight for trying to um, head off that next potential situation that may look like that, that you're getting a whiff of, all those things matter. And I don't think enough people really uh, evaluate that. I mentioned Stephen Colbert before. And I remember when we were about to get sold, um, he had uh, texted me and my wife and said, can you hop on the phone? And unbeknownst to us, he was consulting for this, this ownership group. Mm-hmm. And he said specifically, like, I'm not looking to get paid. I want to make sure the things that are broken that need to be broken, stay broken. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right, right. you get it. You That's get right. it completely because, because, and you talk about the struggle. It's like, right. and there is no, 
joy without suffering. I mean, that this, this is the a tale as old as time. And, and yet we right. keep trying to scrub these things to get rid of all that suffering. No, struggle is essential. Absolutely. It's essential. And I'm grateful for mine. Um, Cause you know, I, I, I signed out of a Wichita tournament, the NBC tournament, 1975. I signed for absolutely nothing. I got no bonus. I got no signing bonus. I got what they call the incentive bonus plan. And that was it. But I was like thrilled. I, I got on a plane, flew back to Lafayette college, went there for the next semester. I felt like a big shot on campus just because I just signed a, a professional baseball contract. So when you sign like that, the, the road's not easy. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're not one of the chosen and you have to fight, 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 which again, I'm really grateful for. I'm, I'm so happy uh, that it, it did not come easily. I'm so happy that I wasn't blessed or chosen early on like that because I learned so much more uh, by digging. I had to dig all the time and you're told that you're not good enough all the time. So you have to find another way. You're always looking for another way. And, and you do want to be that person eventually. For me, I knew the opportunity to be a player was gone. That's not going to happen. But I also wanted to get to the major leagues as a coach. And then I did want to become a manager. And I knew I had to go through this process of understanding the major league way of life, how the major league locker room works, how you interact with major league players, which was different. The game is the same in the minor leagues, but it cannot be more different on the major league level. It cannot. So you have to understand all that. And I wanted to be the fly on the wall. And I, I was for like nine or 10 years. I was a coach before I got a chance to become a major league manager. And it would, that, that time was vital to be told no, 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 no. Keep working, working, working to finally you present it in a way that somebody believed in you. So the book towards the end gets into the 2019 Cubs season, which immediately I start reading. I'm like, oh my God, I, I got to know what happened here. Cause it was a tragedy from the outside. And, and uh, you know, I could see out from the inside. And after I got finished with the chapter, I recall I was doing a talk somewhere and someone asked me, what is the biggest barrier uh, around innovation? And I said, past success and fear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you win, you think you you know deserve to win and maybe you stop taking risks and chances. And then when people act out of fear, uh, they make really terrible choices. And I feel like the Cubs administration were kind of doing both those things. Well, I, I can't agree with you more on that. I, um, uh, I had a, a line back in the day with the race, fortune favors the bold. You have to be willing to make a, a very, um, make a mistake, a very obvious mistake in a way. And, but by the same token, if you're afraid to lose, you're never going to win. So I was all about that. I, it's always about putting it out there in a fearless manner. I like to use the word fearless. And when you're fearless, you have an opportunity to be great. If you're not fearless, you'll never be great. You could be good. You could have moderate success, but you can't be great unless you're fearless to the point that you're willing to make the most obviously horrific mistake possible and, and, and learn from that. So that is, you're hundred percent right with that. Um, and for me that, that last year, it was just, it was confusing. It was confusing because I did concede acquiesced. I said, okay, maybe I am wrong. And I attempted to change. Um, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm coachable. I'm teachable. I listen, like I said before, but by the middle of that year, I knew eh, that's not, that wasn't right. That wasn't true. It's not a matter of me not being able to relate or understand millennials. Cause I think I could, uh, carry on with any age group. It doesn't matter. I can carry on with any age group. I could interact with you. I can understand you and you can understand me. So once I concluded all that, it was kind of too late. And, and so you did have that, um, that fear factor and an overreaction in a sense. Uh, but then again, let me, and I'm concluding this only because it's true. I, I, Theo 
gave me and my family an opportunity that I never would have had otherwise. And I still consider him a friend. He is, I got a note from him upstairs that he gave me on that last day in St. Louis that we uh, met. And I'll always treasure that, that note. It's really sincere and it's very, it's very cool, man. It's very uh, complimentary. It's just a matter that he thought he needed to go in another direction. The Cubs needed to. I didn't agree with that. I thought we should have been together for at least two or three more years to find out where this group really could take us because it was a real charismatic group with a lot of talent. So that was disappointing. Absolutely. was disappointing to me, but I understand why it happened and it was time to move on. Well, and Theo, you know, uh, goes to major league baseball and has a really interesting quote in the book around Mm -hmm. executives like him, maybe Mm -hmm. like indexing too far the other way. So look, we all grow and we all, you know, he's, he's young and, and we make mistakes and hopefully you just, add that into the quilt. All right. So Danny Coyle has become a friend of mine and he brought, I want to find out if this is true because uh, he tells a story in one of his books uh, okay. about if you had, if a player violated some sort of club rule that they would come to your office and pick out a white piece of paper that had wine on it. They had to go get that wine. And then is that true? Yeah, that was uh, early on with the devil rays. I was yeah. trying to, um, you know, uh, eliminate mental mistakes. It was all about mental mistakes, never about physical mistakes. So I had like uh 20 ping pong, maybe 10, 20 ping pong balls in a jar with a yeah. number on them and a corresponding list, like from Bogo wine all the way up to maybe Joseph Phelps, like from a zero, like a $10 fine up to a $200 fine. He was, that was subject to you pulling that ball out of the jar. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys was screwing up so often I had to stop because he, he was just buying me wine all the time. Like and Right. Exactly. But no, I was, I didn't go over 200 bucks. What I wanted to do then I would take the wine, and I got what I call the victory chalice, a big, big chalice. And I would pour a bottle of wine into the chalice after a game so that these guys could actually sip and find out what kind of wines they might like. So it was two-pronged. It, it was to teach you, come on, man, you got to stop making those mental mistakes. Bear down right here. And also, listen, eventually when you're like 45, 50 years old, you might like a nice glass of wine. And here's some examples of what you might like. I love it. That's awesome. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before I do okay. that, there's another philosophy point that you talk about in the book, which is don't interfere with greatness. Yeah. Big. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. I think it's happening way too often. I think, uh, and again, analytically, they're putting too many restraints on athletes. And primarily it's happening with pitchers, I would say more than anybody with mm-hmm. pitch counts, a number of innings pitched their time through the batting order. Uh, there's no even, there's no marquee mashups left back in the day. And Ferguson Jenkins was pitching against Bob Gibson as an example. My God, everybody would stop it. I got to, I got to watch that game that night. Yeah. Okay. Bob Veal or Jim Maloney or Whitey Ford. I mean, Sandy Kopech. There was marquee matchups every night. You had to see that starting pitcher. But now they're being restricted. They're constantly being restricted, and it's all because of. Uh, I, I, I there's a bias involved in that. Of course, you can make numbers uh, mean anything you want them to mean. And part of that third time through, there's certain guys. Yes, I agree with that. But if you don't give a young aspiring pitcher a chance to fight through some difficult moments, he'll never realize the fact that he can't fight through that fifth or sixth inning and still be standing in the seventh, eighth or ninth with the victory. So we're we're getting in the way of greatness. We're we're, um, defining greatness based on math or the potential. And and we're eliminating the opportunities for a lot of players to do that. Like I said, position players, it doesn't happen as much, I don't think, although – well, Javi, but also like uh, Schwarber. We we yeah. did not let Kyle hit against lefties. But at that time in his career, he did not really need to hit against lefties. But 
sometimes even if he had maybe had more opportunity early in his career, mm. he might have gotten to the point where he was better at it sooner. But there's so many restrictions placed on from analytics onto our baseball athletes that I'm saying that we're we're getting in the way of, of, of athletes' greatness, and I'm the, I want to be the last guy that does something like that. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, – one of our directors, McNapier, does mm-hmm. an interesting thing. And so I'm talking about – he's uh, per, uh, directing a Second City main stage review. So these are the top – comedians the top improvisers right. in probably the world uh, you know they're all the ones going to center life all, all those folks uh-huh. he knows that even they are going to get in their heads so sure. during a process where they're writing material he'll do a thing called taboo day where he goes all right you got to bring in three ideas that there's no way in hell second city would ever produce it it's too offensive it's too expensive it's too dangerous and lo and behold we mine so much material from that day that's awesome that's beautiful. People just get, you know, they, they, they get in their own way and, and I get it, you know, like you, you start to get in these familiar patterns and they feel really good to the brain. We know that from neuroscience. And well, these, these pitchers start believing they can't go the third time through the batting order. They don't yeah. even know that, but they start believing the restrictions placed on them, uh, relief pitchers. So again, I, I guess I'm primarily, I've thought about this. When I talk about that in our industry, I think it's primarily based on pitching more than anything. Uh, but then again, it's base dealers. You're not permitted to make an out on the basis, as an example. If you make an out on the basis, somebody's going to come down and see you after the game and ask you what happened there, why was so-and-so running. Every, and all of a sudden, they're going to make bases bigger and want more base stealing, where for the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, it's been restricted based on analytics and who's running everything. It's all about compensation. If you want more stolen bases, have that compensated for. Make, you get so many uh, X number of stolen bases, you get this kind of bonus, et cetera. If you don't want strikeouts, if you want more batting average, compensate for it. But home runs have been compensated for. Nobody cares if you strike out anymore, and they like your walks. They want your OPS to be high. So that's what you're getting because that's what's being paid for. It's funny. I just thought about that. It's like I, like mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of after Ricky Henderson. You know, like you don't see people tearing around the bases. Well, part of it is beating up your body too. That's that's yeah. part, and that's another thing you have to be. Everybody's saying the bigger bases are going to promote more running. I. Again, it's got to be accepted by whoever's running the team because people are going to get thrown out and they don't like that. And then the player himself, he's going to get beaten up more. Sliding, it it beats up your body. Um, They're wearing that oven mitt to protect their hands. I understand Mm -hmm. that. But there's still going to be this this certain level of physical abuse that they're not used to. That again, it's going to come back to, if you're going to pay me to do this, I might be more willing to attempt to steal bases. But there's there's still obstacles in a way from, like I said, analytics, to write down the physical, this hurts. It hurts to be hitting the ground that that many times. All right. So we always end the podcast ask, asking our guests for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, when you're making something out of nothing with your partner, you really get nowhere by saying no, and actually not that far by saying yes. We say you say yes and you affirm and contrib- contribute, and that allows you to explore and heighten. Um, do you have a yes and story for us? Okay. Well, let's just go back to the Hazleton Integration Project. When... Um, first thought about this in 2010 um i came back to hazelton for christmas with jay my wife and i and we're driving in from jim thorpe over the hill we're coming down into hazelton on broad street and it it is dark i mean literally dark i mean the street lights are horrible the the sidewalks are cracked dirty nothing nothing there was was such a a fear about the city um a a lack of trust about the city and this was because it was a really strong influx of Hispanics coming into town uh, versus the, the the folks that had been there for several years. Um, I didn't like anything that I was saying, so but I didn't know how I can help. 
So what we did is uh, I went to a daycare center on a Sunday after church, all Hispanic, and I'm sitting there. The grownups are sitting at a low table with their knees above it, kids running all over the place. They're drinking cheap wine, eating food that everybody had brought, having a blast. And I thought to myself, that's my family in the 1950s and 60s right there. It was yeah. no different than when I was growing up. And I, there's the thread that I'm looking for. Um, the fact that this group of people is exactly like my my grandparents, that group that came before when they first arrived and how they were viewed, dirty kids, different language, different food, music, um, not very smart. Everything that my grandparents went through, these this group of this generation of, of, of uh, Hispanic immigrants was going through right there. So I get on the phone with my um, cousins. I go back to California. I said, listen, we got to do something about this. And what I like to do is I want us to create a daycare center, a center that permits kids after school to come there. So the, the, the working parents, that's the big problem. When kids come home, the, the turn key kids, when they come home, and there's nobody there, that's when you get in trouble. So what the first steps was to give them a place to go after school is over to help them with their homework, give them a place to report to, a sense of safety, all these different things um, we tried to do. And we did. We had we had fundraisers, Yogi Berra, Zim came and helped out, um, had Namath there, I've had uh, the sort of there, have everybody there, we raised money. But as I'm doing this, Joey, what are you doing? The people are, what are you doing? Why are you trying to help those people? You know, they're, they're giving me that particular line. You're, mm-hmm. you're, it's very misplaced. And I said, listen, these folks are going to save our city. We need this influx of youth, young families, hardworking. We need that just like our grandparents were. And we always romanticize the past. And I have a chance to actually view it in real time, what your grandparents had, had to go through, and you're going to push it away. No, you're not. So I took a beating for a while. I took mm-hmm. a beat and I said something on national TV that didn't go over well. But nevertheless, I knew it was the right thing to do. And now we're a national model. We're mm-hmm. a national model. We've won all kinds of awards. The place is going great. Last night, we had a dinner with a group from uh, Geisinger Medical that's recently donated like 30000 bucks to our group. And now they want to come down and view the center and do even more. So yeah. for me, I don't know if that was a no, yes. I mean, for me, it was yes. I knew it was the right thing to do. Many people are giving me a hard time. What are you doing, Joey? You're, you know, you're, you're, you're working against us. How dare you help these people? And now everybody's on board. And I get almost equally thanked like you do with the Cubs winning the World Series by local folks that I've known forever that will come up to me and say, hey, great job what you're doing within the city. It was absolutely ne- uh, needed or necessary. But five, ten years ago, five, eight years ago, that's not what I was hearing. It's like a yes and to the American dream that, that no, this is, this is what we were all, this is, if, if it was a myth, it was a really good one, but let's try to make it an ideal and actually do it. Yeah. But I could, uh, yes. And the, the point is when I talked to my grandparents, it was all magical and grandpa yeah. Madden or close sick or grant, they would tell you about these times and you would just say, why, why wasn't I born at that particular time? I would love to have lived that. Right. And now we're seeing a group of people coming through exactly, not kind of, exactly the same, faced with the same kind of set of circumstances as our groups did. And we're pushing them away. We're, re- we're repelling them, uh, just like our group had been repelled, which we would have been really ups- very upset about had we witnessed that. So understand, it, it's, it's, these folks need our help. They're no different than we are. Uh, we, we're building it. It's, it's going wonderfully. If you came down to our center, I'll tell you what, you meet our kids at our center, they're special, man. There's a lot of really bright kids coming through our center right now, and they're moving on to colleges, and they're coming up with some really good jobs. 
And um, I'm so impressed and also impressed with the families, the fathers and the moms, they show up, moms and dads show up at the center and you meet the pop and the mom and you know, this kid's not getting away with anything, man. They, they got, they, they, um, they have a great uh, family unit involved there. The book is called the book of Joe trying not to suck at baseball and life. Joe Madden. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. I really appreciate it, man. That was really um, uh, quite stimulating for me too. I really appreciate it. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive